0: welcome i am annette martin and paranormal world is a place to enlighten entertain and empower you call in at six four six six five two two zero seven one and ask our guest a question and there's going to be a time where you can call in and ask for my psychic impressions about your life remember to give us your first name only and one question per caller we can talk about everything except missing persons or police cases i only work with the police directly pertaining to these types of cases if you have a police case please contact me by email at annette closure for you that's annette at closure for you Every Wednesday on Annette Martin's Paranormal World, my guests will be authors and experts from the field of either alternative health, metaphysics, life coaches, psychologists, spirituality, astrology, paranormal phenomena, ghost hunting, plus live on air psychic readings by yours truly. Life can be mysterious and challenging at times, so perhaps with the help of our guest and myself, we can shed a little light on your life. And now it gives me great pleasure to welcome my special guest, the famous parapsychologist Lloyd Arbach, the director of the Office of Paranormal Investigations in San Francisco. Lloyd has been investigating cases of apparitions, hauntings, and poltergeists for over 30 years. He is the author of seven books, including three recent ones, A Paranormal Casebook, Ghost Hunting in the New Millennium, Haunting and Poltergeist, A Ghost Hunter's Guide, and Ghost Hunting, How to Investigate the Paranormal. With a graduate degree in parapsychology, he also teaches parapsychology at HCH Institute for Local and Distant Learning and other topics at John F. Kennedy University, both in Northern California. Lloyd is currently on the advisory boards of the Rhine Research Institute Center, the Windbridge Institute, and the Forever Family Foundation, as well as board of the Psychic Entertainers Association. His media appearances are quite extensive, with well over 100 national and local TV shows and series, and thousands of other media appearances in print, on radio, and online. Will they also call him Professor Paranormal, where he performs as professional mentalist and psychic entertainer. And recently, he's finished a professional chocolate course and will have both a book on chocolate and various products out later this year. Well, with all of this, may I welcome this multi-talented parapsychologist, Lloyd Arbach? Hello, Lloyd.
1: Hi, Annette.
0: My goodness. (laughs) There are so many questions to ask you about the paranormal. You know, why... Why don't we kind of start out with, with what is parapsychology?
1: Well, parapsychology is the study of human consciousness, uh, so our minds, our spirits soul, whatever we're going to call it, and how consciousness connects with the world around us, whether it's through um, connecting directly to other minds, to distant locations, what we would call ESP, whether it is the consciousness affecting matter and energy directly, what we call mind over matter or psychokinesis, or the idea that consciousness survives the death of the body. Uh, which is where we end up with apparitions, ghosts, and such, and we've called it survival of bodily death. Uh, Parapsychology is both um, mainly focused, actually, I should say, on laboratory research, but it has a long history of field investigation and research as well. In fact, that's what kind of kick-started things back in the 1800s.
0: My goodness. And um, does it cover, uh, what kinds of areas does parapsychology cover?
1: Well, there are three main areas. There's ESP and and all the the sub-abilities that we talk about for that. So extrasensory perceptions, we're talking about telepathy, clairvoyance or remote viewing, uh, precognition, of course, uh, and um, various abilities around information, about picking up information without the use of normal senses. Then there's uh, psychokinesis, which is a wide range of the mind acting directly on matter and energy. So that would be everything from healing, including self-healing, to what people think of when they hear psychokinesis, which is levitating or moving objects, bending spoons and such. And finally, that big area of survival of bodily death is important to us because it is kind of what really got the early researchers interested in this area, and that's the idea that we survive. We we live on in some form after the death of our physical bodies, and uh, that would include uh, everything from apparitions to reincarnation and even near-death experiences.
0: So, when you go out and teach these classes, are you teaching um, all of these things at the same time, or do you take them individually?
1: My courses are focused on different areas. So, you know, the whole program, all the courses I teach, which are there's seven courses altogether for the basic parapsychological studies program. And it really it's not an academic program. There are um, more, I guess you could say, next steps for people to go if they want to take a certain area a little more in depth with some of my colleagues. But it is a really it's a deep overview. And so what I do is cover, for example, I have one course on the evidence for life after death looking at survival. I have another course that looks at um, psychokinesis and precognition. Another one that goes more called being psychic, which goes more into clairvoyance and telepathy and other information abilities that we've got, including a little bit of precognition there. And uh, then I have a course that talks about the theories and models of all this how it might all work, how it connects with other fields of science, because there's a real connection, obviously, with psychology, but people are unaware of the connection to physics and a connection to anthropology, for example. And finally, um, of course, there's that ghost hunting class, teaching people to do research <laughs> as well.
0: Right, right. Oh, how exciting. It, it, it is just so exciting. And, you, you know, how long has parapsychology been out there into well, the world?
1: As parapsychology officially, I guess you could say the laboratory studies really didn't start until the early 1930s. Oh, yeah. Uh, it became Even though the term had been around for longer, it became uh, more common usage because of the research of William McDougall, J.B. Ryan, and Louisa Ryan, um, at Duke University in the 30s. However, uh, the official start of the field really is 1882 with the founding of the Society for Psychical Research in Great Britain and a couple of years later the American Society for Psychical Research so prior to being called parapsychology was called psychical research and uh... that uh... included for the most part uh... field investigation field work that researchers were doing and the researchers the people who were involved were folks from other fields of science so there were chemists astronomers physicists geologists i mean people from the hard sciences were heavily involved as it happens there were a few in the fledgling field of psychology as well because you know psychology had not been around for very long right point, in fact um although you won't find this in a lot of psych books william james who is a considered by many as the the founding father of american psychology was a president of the american society for psychical research so uh and he wrote about the subject but you again for the most part you won't find that in most of the books out there
0: how interesting <laughs> so parapsychology sort of snuck in there huh <laughs>
1: Yeah, it it really means on the side of psychology. Uh, You know, at its root, psychology means the study of the psyche or the mind. Parapsychology, we talk about on the side of psychology because psychology at some point took a divergent step and really became the study of of behavior more than it became the study of the mind. Whereas parapsychology looks at the mind, kind of, you might say, a pure mind. uh, How, without everything else, the mind can still connect and react to the rest of the world. So, uh, we're both dealing with the mind but from different angles.
0: Yes, well, it it, it is very, very interesting how uh, it has broken off into two aspects, actually. Um, One of the areas that, uh, of course, I am very interested in, and I know that you are very interested in, is uh, the ghost hunting. And that aspect of how does that actually fit into the parapsychology area?
1: Well, again, it was um, it was kind of late, the early stuff. Uh, there's a great book called The Ghost Hunters by Deborah Blum. It Only came out a couple of years ago, and it's really about the early investigators and research, field researchers, um, and what they did and what they were interested in, and and it really was those people who really were the first ghost hunters because they were really looking at people's experiences of ghosts, um, the field work in this area really supports a lot of the lab work. I mean, it's tough to unfortunately bring uh, some of what we study in ghost hunting into the laboratory because we don't really have ghosts who are willing to come into the lab for it. <laughs> um,
0: Wouldn't that'd be that be wonderful?
1: Yeah, that'd be really great if we could, you know. Getting well, design, you know the and form might be tough, though
0: right now that's something that you and i can do when next time we go out on our investigation we can ask the ghost now would you come into the laboratory with us so that we can show that you're a real ghost
1: but we have to make sure they know what time to come in and you know how they are with time so
0: i know they they really just don't pay any attention to time
1: Um, you know, but but we can we can do research and invest, you know We can really put controls into situations in the field, and that's something that has been done. Um, researchers in parapsychology, from uh, people such as Gertrude Lake, Gertrude Schmeidler, had some great concepts on doing studies in the field with people who had these experiences to see at least whether or not there was something truly in the environment. So, for example, something I've done on occasion is you have a place like well, we've gone to the USS Hornet, for example. Correct. Very, very haunted aircraft carrier. And I've taken people in there who did not know where the hauntings were. They just know, you know, they knew the place was haunted, but they didn't know where things were in the ship. And I walked them through the ship with a basic floor plan of the third deck, which has a number of places where the, the ghost congregated seems, and that basically had them mark down where they felt something and uh, these are average people these were not necessarily people who you know were psychics in fact the the closest would be a couple people who had had a ghost experience in their home so uh, what was interesting was in that situation as in Gertrude's work you do find that people pick up on the spots that other people have reported with no cues whatsoever so there is good uh, controlled evidence you might say that there's something there now what that something is, is is the interpretation we're trying to figure out
0: Exactly. (laughs) Yes, and hopefully, um, I I think that is the most important thing, is to be able to show that uh, many, many different people are picking up those subtle energies that are there. And that we can say, yes, we definitely have an electromagnetic field here. There's something going on. Well, we can do an
1: electromagnetic field here if if we can also measure an electromagnetic field. That's the big question. So we have to have those devices to see how those connect to people's experiences.
0: Yes, and uh, hopefully there's going to be some new um, machines or, or apparatuses where we can uh, tell more and, and be able to measure So maybe that will be coming up soon. I don't know. But uh, it certainly is something that needs to be out there so that we can get that proof that there is a ghost there.
1: Well, unfortunately, the proof is going to not really come from us. Um, We can certainly give supporting evidence for it. But the the basic problem is what will be accepted as proof. And the real issue is in science in general today, there is a split between... Uh, people who believe that we are basically machines. We're, we're biological machines. We've consciousness of the mind is a trick of the brain. It's totally neurological. It has nothing to do with anything else. And so there wouldn't be anything to survive the death of the body. Now, that doesn't mean that we still couldn't find residual hauntings, imprints. But the other side of that, of course, is, are the folks who believe that mind and body, while connected, are also separable. And the mind can exist in some form without the body. And that's what we're really talking about It's kind of that kind of proof. And it's, it's just not, uh, there's no good definition of consciousness in science and that until that happens. That we can prove it to ourselves, and I think we have, but uh, proving it to the rest of the world or proving it to science is just not going to happen until that other question is settled.
0: Right. Right. Uh- Okay, you know, let's talk about this some more, but right now we're going to have to take a short break and we're going to come back with parapsychologist Lloyd Arbach. So hold on. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Annette Martin, and we've been talking to Lloyd Arbach, the very famous parapsychologist, about ghosts and uh, parapsychology. And, Lloyd, we were uh, talking uh, about um, how we can show and prove that there is definitely a ghost but there are some other questions i have for you because there are many people who want to know about how they can learn about parapsychology and what kind of educational opportunities are there uh... for them to learn more about parapsychology
1: well first you know from a basic level there are great books on parapsychology (laughs) out there that seemingly the ghost hunting community um... With a rare exception. I I met a number of people who truly are curious. But it seems like books aren't read very much anymore. Uh, People like (laughs) to read uh, websites, but uh, they're reading each other's websites, which really doesn't help. There are great books out there. And uh, one of the best sources of information for book lists, for recommendations, for educational opportunities, in fact, there's a great new listing for all educational opportunities out there, is the website of the Parapsychology Foundation. uh, And it's parapsychology.org. And they have a blog in their Lyceum section, which is all about education. Um, They have bibliographies, of recommended readings, uh, just great, great, great stuff out there. Uh, For folks who want free books and are interested in history and and where the initial ghost centers got started, you go to Eat to Google Books, and you do a search on psychical research or ghosts and such, because there are all those free books out there now. That, um are before copyright came in in 19, you know, they're out of copyright now from, so the pre-1926. And so a lot of the early researcher stuff is there for free. And you can also get it through a company, um, a site called archive.org. So those it's are- Oh, wonderful. Great starts right there. The Parapsychological <laughs> Association, which is parapsych.org. Uh, also has a listing of educational opportunities Lists all the courses that people are <coughs> offering online right now although i think that the one of the parapsychology foundation is much more up-to-date and there are um, there's no academic programs here in the states yet uh... there was one which is where i graduated from that's john f kennedy university we had one back in the seventies and eighties but uh, i understand that atlantic university which is the university started by edgar casey which is in virginia beach uh, virginia uh, they will be, they're looking at starting an academic master's program in parapsychology.
0: And I, oh my goodness, how wonderful.
1: I think they're going to be offering some undergrad courses as well. Uh, in England, there are 20 universities or so that have graduates of the Kessler unit from the University of Edinburgh, and that was a group of the parapsychology unit up there, and they're teaching individual courses or sometimes multiple courses in the UK. And there's a relatively new master's program which is also available online, For distance learning at Coventry University, which is a Masters in Parapsychology, so there are opportunities that are starting up. Um, It's just, I mean, my courses are a great start. One of the things that people ask me is, well, what good is, what good are your courses? They're not academic, and the answer is they give you a great basis and broad scope of the field. Um, You end up with good entry to other other courses where you might not have had the background for them. And on top of that, it, it, uh, several of my students have just kind of picked up and emailed some of my colleagues, and when they mentioned that I, they took my courses, they get an immediate response. So,
0: Wonderful. And where are you teaching this? Why don't you courses, give us?
1: Yeah, my courses are taught at HCH Institute in Lafayette, California, in the south side of San Francisco, and we teach them locally here. However, um, I've probably had more distance students than local students, and you can go to my website, which is mindreader.com, and click on parapsychological studies or go to hypnotherapytraining.com and click on the parapsychology tab there. That's the school itself. Or even just search HCH Institute and then parapsychology. And that'll take you to the course descriptions as well. And what we've done is audio recorded all the courses. And so folks have the lectures and they get all the materials. And then one of the things that I've done for distance students since they don't have this opportunity otherwise is I set up time on the phone with my students individually. So for each course, they get a certain amount of time to talk to me and ask questions, and we chat about um, the subject matter and make sure they understand it. So that's kind of in lieu of tests. So I, you might say I kind of feel them out by,
0: <laughs>
1: by having a discussion with them and yes. the material that way. Um, but that's something you don't find in most of the distance courses. It's, it's actually, I opted for that rather than the actual online function, uh, because with online stuff, you often have a lot of text and video. But there's very little other than minimal email contact. You have very little contact with the instructor. And this is a little different. I wanted to make sure people really grasp the material, so if we're doing it this way. And then distance students, if they want, can also call in live to our classes. So our live classes, too. I have students here, even here in the Bay Area who have attended because they didn't like the traffic pattern, so they actually attended class via phone.
0: That's great. That's, yeah. that's wonderful. So is there a number that they need to call for that?
1: Um, they can call HCH Institute if they want, which is, uh, 925-283-3941. Uh, the website will probably give them more, inf- as much information. And, uh, that's, and of course my, the number for the Office of Paranormal Investigations, if folks want to reach you, although, um, it sometimes gets kind of busy, so like, we, it may take a few days to get back to you. But that number is 415-249-9275. Great. My, web, my website is
0: mindreader.com. That's an easy one. Very good. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I want to remind everyone, if you want to call in and ask Lloyd a question, the, our number is 646-652-2071. And I do believe that we have a caller on the line. Hello? Not. i'm no maybe not <laughs> it looked like we did okay all right okay so why don't we uh go on here um you know You've talked about that there's a majority of ghost hunters that misuse the term scientific when applied to their investigations. Why don't you tell us why is that and where do issues like demonic possession fit in, which, of course, is something that I am very livid about as well. So let's kind of talk about that.
1: You know, there's... uh Steve Chu, who's our director of uh, the um, Secretary of Energy for the United States, was on the Daily Show last, uh, either earlier this year or last year. And he made a really important point. Um, they were discussing the lack of science education in the United States. And it, it's not the ghost hunters fault. I will, I will say that the reason they're, you know, the term psych- using the term scientific, it's not really their fault. It's the fault of the education system and sometimes the media in making people understand what science actually is. Uh, it seems that there's been a more and more of a connection in people's minds that simply using technology, uh, an advanced piece of technology, makes you scientific. But that's actually completely false. I mean, if, if that was the case, that when you use your microwave oven, which is a piece of advanced technology.
0: <laughs> right. Mm-hmm.
1: And it's not the case. Um, in fact, te- when you use the term technology, technology also refers to uh, flint knives and obsidian spearheads. That was the technology of the time of human beings. So you really, technology is not science. Science yields technology, but technology is not science. And using, for example, an electromagnetic field detector with either a light that, that blinks or comes on or a needle that moves back and forth, just using that is not being scientific. It's what you do with the data and how you look for alternative explanations for that information that comes through, for that reading, that makes you at least attempting to be scientific. And really, the science, scientific method is about um, gathering data, figuring out, just getting some idea of what questions you need to ask from that data, and then testing those questions by doing doing things. You know, So... If I think that there are that ghosts are connected to electromagnetic fields, then I'll get some readings and see how that works in some amount of the haunted places. Then I'll go back into new places and see if I get similar readings under similar circumstances, having eliminated all the other possible ways that those electro those fields could be generated, such as wiring and water through pipes and things like that. And
0: uh, right, so it's sort of a process of elimination to begin with.
1: Totally. It's that, and it's also testing a hypothesis, testing students. Exactly. So what we've been doing is trying to figure out how electromagnetic fields, unusual fields in the environment, connect to people's experiences, because just having a reading means nothing. Having a reading where someone sees a ghost means that at least that reading is connected to the ghostly experience. So you have to have that kind of correlation, and we're listening. It's what you do with the data that really makes a
0: exactly. difference. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. As far as
1: demonic possession stuff goes, now here we're talking about terms that are religious in nature and anthropological in nature. Uh, possession, actually, outside um, the Catholic Church and a number of other, um, you know, it's kind of the the, the Christian uh, view things. The demonic you know, Satanic, Satan-demon hierarchy of things. The term possession in in anthropology refers actually to any situation where someone is channeling an entity. So, you know, when people were possessed by the gods, for example, um, the oracle of Delphi was possessed by the spirit of Apollo. And the folks who are voodoo priests who call in the loa, the spirits, the voodoo spirits, they bring them into their body. They are possessed. Those are not negative connotations. Those are usually positive connotations.
0: Right. right.
1: The idea. What, what's happened though is, and it's probably a good part of it, we can be laid at the foot of William Peter Blatty and uh, The Exorcists more than anything else. <sighs> Certainly, the uh, idea that Ouija boards are evil is was made popular by that movie more than anything else. Uh, but the term possession. To many people, you know, channeling and mediumship are consensual sex and possession would be rape. That's, That's one way of putting it. One medium actually put it to me that way. And what is pretty clear, however, is first of all, it's pretty rare for anyone to even, for any spirit to even try to do that. It's pretty rare for someone to let that happen. And when I say let that happen, that's exactly what's happened. They're opening themselves up and letting it happen. So, uh, And there aren't that many evil things out there. I and mean, that's the other problem. is The demon part of this whole process is a problem because that's a very re- religious perspective. And on two levels, we can't approach that um, in parapsychology. On the one level, as a science, you can't approach demons because demons are of God, and God is by his nature unknowable, and therefore we can't study God in science. That's why science doesn't deal with that.
0: I see also,
1: You can't also deal with demons It's basically magic You can't deal with magic Magic is outside the rules of physics
0: Right It definitely is outside the rule right. of physics so,
1: The other side of it is that demons only exist in certain mythology So, you know, there are demons in other cultures So, so what do you do with that?
0: Right, exactly. That's always the problem because you have so many indigenous people uh, who definitely believe in demons. And so that is always a problem. And it sort of has bled over into our society as well. You know, we do have a caller on the line. And uh, I think she has a question for you. Hi, Kay from Myrtle Beach.
2: Hello, Annette and Lloyd. It's a great show. I'm really enjoying it. I have a question. Uh, I actually have several, but I don't want to take up all your time. But I'm wondering if you can explain to me what the difference is between um, spirits, ghosts, and guardian angels.
1: Well, spirits and ghosts are often considered the same thing. I think that the term "ghost" has a lot of um, folklore attached to it, and so in some places you use the word "ghost" for any visual uh, or auditory thing that doesn't is not explained that relates to the history of the place, but whether that's conscious or intelligent um, may not matter in certain cultures. So for us, the term ghost, we use is the more traditional, I guess you could say, the more popular idea is that it's the spirit, the consciousness of someone that survived the death of the body and is being seen or heard or felt or smelled. And so in parapsychology, we would probably use the term spirit and ghost and apparition. Apparition is actually the term we use more often interchangeably. Uh, guardian Angel uh, has... A connotation to it. Again, that's a religious connotation of the angelic. Um, in other cultures, it's guardian spirit, and it might be a guardian ancestor spirit in some cultures. So I think the, the term guardian might be a better term. Somebody who's watching out for you might, might be more appropriate. But then what that or who that someone is, if you're saying angel, that has a religious connotation uh... back to the same problem we have with demons and if you say spirit then it could be somebody you knew or an ancestor such as in uh... in japan for example the shinto religion they believe everybody has an ancestor that hangs around and watches out for them
2: okay and then I, I don't know if i can ask one more question um... what about animal spirits you know apparitions i Actually saw my cat who passed away recently. Is that a common thing? Or do is it common to see our our pets as well as the, uh, the spirits of people?
1: Probably more common than people think. There's some great book collections even going back to the 1800s of uh, animals pet ghosts. And uh, I think it's it's not an uncommon. I've had that experience myself with a former you know, one one of my cats from years ago. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's not an uncommon experience for people to have that and. What's interesting is um sometimes those pet ghosts will stick around and haunt a place like you'd expect the previous owner to haunt the place. and So people will ask um someone I have a friend who actually visited a bed and breakfast in Minnesota and she'd been there several times and um the cat that belonged to the owner used to try- walk around and even get into rooms uh without too much difficulty when when she was alive but so one night, one morning, I think she woke up and uh, said that uh, your cat was in bed with me again. And the woman had said, Well, my cat died last month. <laughs> so the
0: cat
1: was still doing, his th- doing her thing. Kind
0: of- right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Kay, for calling in. And uh, we're going to have to take a short break, and we will be coming right back with Lloyd Arbach, the very famous parapsychologist. And with our guest, the very famous parapsychologist, Lloyd Arbok, Uh, we've been talking about parapsychology and now we've moved into ghosts and and we are now even discussing about demonic possession. And I have a question for you, uh, Lloyd, Uh, many of uh, the ghost investigators that are out there today uh, seem to be getting involved and frightened uh, and thinking that there's a lot of demons when they Go into a house instead of understanding about the energy that this may be a ghost who has had uh, a bad situation happen to them before they were either murdered or they died.
1: Yeah, you know, well, it's that spooky thing. One of the reasons that I think people get into this sometimes is a hobby because it really is a hobby for most people as much as they may claim it's not. Um, They want to be freaked out. I mean, the very fact that we see these TV shows where someone on the show runs screaming from the house because right. noise in the dark, it's like, come yeah. on. Uh, I mean, if you really were interested and really were investigating this, you would never do that.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And so it, it seems to me that what needs to be uh, going on is that a lot of the ghost investigators need to be educated on the aspect of what is a ghost and what is a residual haunting, which we haven't talked about yet. Well, yeah, maybe I mean,
1: we. I was going to say yeah, that, that's a big, big part of it. Uh, I think the education part is, is the real part of it.
0: Uh, absolutely, I, I think that that is uh, very important because, as you and I know, um, when we go out and in an investigation, um, where I'm able to talk to the ghosts and I'm able to communicate with them, and many of the groups that are moving out there and doing investigations don't seem to have a clue. As to how to communicate they're not using a psychic and they don't know um, what is really going on yes they're getting some measurements on their meters but they all of a sudden become frightened and start calling it a demon which they are not
1: yeah uh, and personally if I was there I would be very insulted if I was the ghost
0: uh, I certainly would be too
1: <laughs> yeah and you know and then there are those those who insist on calling you know start yelling at the ghost to try to get them to do something it's like There's there's two reactions you're going to have. If you're a human being and that if somebody yells at you to do something, you're either going to walk away, which is fortunately what happens most of the time, or you're going to slap them upside the head.
0: (laughs) Right. Uh,
1: And if you do slap them upside the head, they're going to call you evil. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: In in the meantime, they're the ones who incited you to do that to begin with. So, um, I don't think that's, I think that's human. (laughs) That's a human reaction. It's not an evil (laughs) reaction. Um, so, and their their behavior being as it is, would be considered, I would think evil or bad to begin with. So, these right. going free as well. It, it's a it's a tough thing. I think that uh, people have too much investment in the folklore. But most of the people out there, unfortunately, really their entry to ghost hunting, their model, has been some of these TV shows. And not the TV shows from the 90s. It's the, you know that were like sightings and in search of and things like that. It's really the TV shows like Ghost Hunters, and I think it's was probably the big one, uh, where people can get relatively inexpensive. It's still not cheap, but relatively inexpensive equipment, and anybody can go out there and do that. It's like, okay, you want to be a bird watcher? All you need is a pair of binoculars. That's what you need to do.
0: <laughs> right.
1: What we're talking about, we're talking about ghost watching, not ghost investigating. There's no investigation going on here, uh, for the most part. Um, it's it's really about getting readings and then just making judgment calls based on the readings that may or may be totally false. So it's unfortunate that people don't have... uh, The thing that really bothers me, I'll tell you, is how little curiosity these folks actually have about what's actually going on.
0: I agree. Yeah. uh, I think that's... Very little curiosity. You know, we have uh, Joanne uh, is here in our chat room, and she's asking you a question: Is there any danger for an average person to attempt communication with a ghost?
1: Um, same danger you might have with living with attempting communication with any person. You might not like what you hear. <laughs> that's
0: that's, that's very true. It.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that that's about it. Um, you know. Uh, And it's also your reaction to that communication. I think that some people very openly try to communicate, but because of the way the culture has prepared us sometimes, the reaction to even a hello, which is a big surprise because you didn't expect to get anything, is a freak out. So the thing that's important is that if you're going to attempt communication, assume you're going to get communication and prepare yourself for a hello out of nowhere. If nothing happens, you can be disappointed. If something happens, you won't be freaked out because you're prepared for getting that. So I exactly. that, that's the main thing. Um, you know, the real danger of any of this stuff is the same danger you might have had if your kid brother or sister jumped out of the closet at you as you were walking by and you were a kid.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> and how you many times has that happened?
1: Right. <laughs> many you get times. Freaked out. So it's the because- sudden, unexpected, Something, and if you always expect, it can be cliche, but if you always expect the unexpected, then at least you'll be prepared for something unusual that happens and, and want to look for what's what's causing it, what's, why it's doing that.
0: Exactly. Well, we have another caller on the line, Fonda from Myrtle Beach. Hello, Fonda.
2: Hello there. This has been extremely interesting. And I was wondering, um, all of us have the experience with the movie Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Um, does but does the term poltergeist always have um, an evil or a negative connotation to it, or does it have more of a a different meaning in 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 what you both study?
1: Well, well, first of all, the movie poltergeist really the beginning with the stuff moving around that was typical of the poltergeist case. However, it took a left turn. Um, nobody <laughs> deals with these from other dimensions, and kids don't disappear into other dimensions. So that was a completely, uh, that was a science fiction film, more than it was a horror film right. in some respects. Mm-hmm. The term poltergeist is actually goes can be traced back to at least the 16th century in Germany, and it was applied to a very specific type of ghostly or paranormal experience where physical things would happen.
0: So they would, it means noisy ghosts because they were actually getting rappings and sounds on the
1: walls, uh, not voices, but bangings and things like that. So... Besides physical things moving around, it was those those bangings. And it it, it rarely has ever generated anything bad in the sense of harmful, although there are those poltergeist cases where uh, people get scratched or even choked, which does not come from spirits. I mean, the thing about poltergeists is we know, and we've applied in the last 80-plus years in parapsychology, it's very clear that we're dealing with something coming from one of the living people. And it's usually the person who's scratched is the person who's actually doing it. Um, their own mind is causing these physical effects that other people can pick up. And it's usually related to stress and something psychological or emotional. Um, and the stereotype is, 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 is kids, you know, teenage girls. But that's a, pretty much a stereotype. It's, it's a little bit broader right. than that. Um, it's okay. it's it's bad in the sense that stuff breaks. So I guess you could say that that's a bad bad thing. So things do break.
2: Right. Well, interesting. Now, like for example, the Amityville Horror, where things were happening with the house. Um, I mean, is is that a believable and and realistic that they well, were trying uh, to get that family totally, out?
1: No, it's it's totally an unrealistic. Uh, first of all, the the case itself, okay. the book, the book, the movie was different, slightly different from the book, but the case itself um, has mm-hmm. been on so many levels shown to be false. Uh, oh. The uh, I actually knew some of the researchers who had gone in there uh and the problem with this case is first of all, the case was genuine in the sense that when I talked to someone who knew one of the kids a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And when they moved in, um, knowing there had been a mass murder in this house, that Ronald DeFeo had gone nuts and killed his family.
0: So knowing that, they
1: moved in the house. They um they had already talked to a lawyer, actually apparently with a lawyer who helped uh facilitate the sale, had brought up the idea of doing a of of how cool it would be if this place was haunted we could sell a book like The Exorcist. This is what he claimed, mm-hmm. in fact. Mm-hmm. So this is the purpose they went in. But they did, when they went in, they did get really odd feelings, really <laughs> bad feelings, and apparently, according to this person who said she knew one of the kids, they even saw a kind of a recurrent that imprint that, we, that Annette and I were hinting at, this residual haunting mm-hmm. of what had happened. Although Ronald DeFeo, who was still alive, you could still see him, theoretically, as an imprint. So, there was that yeah, yeah. they moved out That's three weeks later they moved out before anybody yes. investigated the place I see
2: um, okay. Jay
1: Anson who wrote the book never went to the house oh and there are factual well, errors
2: think people should know yeah,
1: yeah there, are, there are serious factual errors there was a whole scene in the, in the book in the movie about the Lutz is seeing some sort of pig face demon by the light of the full moon however they were not in the house <laughs> at any point when the, full, the moon was full
0: uh, <laughs> so, so there were little things well, like yeah. that. Uh, the Shinnecock yeah. Indians, with the supposed Indian burial site, the
1: Shinnecock Indians mm-hmm. were not there. They were not in that area. There was no burial site.
0: Oh, my goodness. So how much of the story <laughs> is <laughs> real?
1: Well, I think <laughs> they probably, you know, my guess is they probably had a real experience in the house, even mm-hmm. though part of it might be primed by the fact that they all knew that they were moving into a house of the mass murder. Um, they might have had a real experience with the imprint, but... Uh, because it was pretty, you know, emotionally bad. But as far as right. the rest of it, it was most likely either um, something they learned to believe themselves or um, it just basically was made up. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for clarification and explanation, and uh, I really
0: appreciate your time. Sure.
1: Thank you. Thanks for call. Uh,
0: all right. Thank you for calling you. in. and We're going to take another... Short break, and we're going to be coming right back with Lloyd Arbach, a very famous parapsychologist. So if you have more questions for our guest, please call 646 652 2071.
1: Hello, race fans. This is Jeff Gilder, creator of racersreunion.com. When you're in Myrtle Beach, check out my favorite, the Caravel Resort. The Caravel Resort has a golf department and concierge with golf privileges at virtually every course on the Grand Strand, including the coveted Dunes Club.
0: And ladies, pamper yourself with Caravel's Studio Spa.
1: R and radio.
0: to Annette Martin's Paranormal World we're here with Lloyd Arbach, a very well known and famous parapsychologist we've been talking about parapsychology and ghosts and if you have a question to ask him please dial in at 646-652-2071 Lloyd I do have a question from our chat room and Joanne is asking what's the best way to invite a ghost to communicate with us
1: well I think
0: in that you might be able to answer that question a little <laughs> better. Uh, I certainly can okay and, and I do believe the best way to uh, talk to a ghost is first of all you need to stay very calm take a couple of deep breaths and just close your eyes for a moment and uh, ask the question uh, a question of the ghost first of all You can say hello to them and see if you can get a hello back. Tell them your name and tell them why you are there. That's one of the very important things that I have found is that the ghosts always say to me, well, who are you? (laughs) That's what they always ask me. Who are you? And so I always introduce myself to them. And if Lloyd and I are out on an investigation, I introduce them to Lloyd and to our cameraman and tell them that we're there to talk with them and to find out about their lives. So I go about it in a very, very positive tone always. So I feel that that is the best way uh, to get started. And In the beginning, if you are not an intuitive, if you're not a medium, uh, you may just feel something. You know, you may just feel um, their energy. You may feel a very nice, soft feeling. Or you could even feel um, um, maybe that they're not well, that they're not doing well, that they're sad. And, And so if you can start out with just picking up the emotions coming from the ghost that's wonderful then you can move on from there but always always introduce yourself I think that is so important
1: yeah I would say that um, we've had the best luck over the years I mean just in general whether I have had a psychic there or not had the really the best luck working with people um, when I say people uh, ghosts by being polite being nice uh, and even showing that we're, we've got a sense of humor, that we're there to have fun, we'd like them to join in, um, basically to invite them to participate. So I think that treat, just think about you're, you're walking into their location um, and think about if you walked into someone's house, how you'd want to treat, how you'd want to be with pe- the person who owns that house. So you want to be friendly and open and uh, really try to get communication going in that perspective.
0: Great. Yes, I totally agree. And we have another caller on the line. We have Cindy from Laurens, South Carolina. Hello, Cindy. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Annette Martin's Paranormal World. Would you have a question for Lloyd?
2: Uh, Yes, I wondered if um, if you think you have a ghost or spirit within your home, is it necessary to bring a psychic in to help the spirit or ghost move on to the other world? Or I mean, because if they're friendly, is it necessary to do that?
1: No, it's not necessary. Uh, You basically can. uh, I think the the question to ask is just very nicely, "Who are you and what can I do for you?" I think the, the the one question that's not often asked by people is, "What can I do for you?" And it seems that people get sometimes get responses, which is unfortunately freaks them out a little bit because they didn't expect it. <laughs> but it, it's really about that. It's really about um, trying to figure out what they need to move on or move away uh, more than anything else. And okay. Y- you can pretty That's much okay. do that on your own. You can also say um, things like, uh, "We don't mind having you here, but you might find yourself better off some, you know, somewhere else. Uh, you might want to let go." And you Just kind of like talk to him a little bit about
0: it okay okay all right well i really appreciate that very good thank you cindy for calling in
3: thank you,
2: thank
0: you. Bye-bye. uh-huh bye-bye well lloyd you know, i have another question for you how come uh so many of the ghost hunters made the use of psychics in investigations such a taboo when uh, parapsychologists have worked with psychics for many many decades
1: well, I think there's two reasons. Number one, um if they have a psychic there, it's not about them, it's about the psychic. That's number one. Um, and, and it makes the psychic the star. Uh it makes it more, you know, if you're holding a piece of equipment, then it's still you with that equipment. But if you have someone who's talking like a psychic, then it's about them as much as it is about you. So I think that there's uh, that perspective from the TV show idea. And the problem, I think, also is that some of the psychics you, you know who have been on TV are a little bit um, abrasive or flaky or drama- overly dramatic. So the models that people see of psychics may not be the best uh, give to them, give them any encouragement that there are actually normal people out there who are psychics. So that turns people off to that as well. And I think, finally, it's hard for these groups to find psychics that are any good. Um, or even work with sensitives because they don't know how to. And because, again, these TV shows have basically poo-pooed the psychic. And, I, and again, I think it really a lot of times um, it can have to do with, uh, especially in the big, the biggest base model like Ghost Hunters, it has to do with the focus on technology more than anything else and the focus away from people's experiences, which seems to be, uh, for some reason, what they think is scientific, even though it's not. Um, I think those are all reasons why.
0: Right. Uh, I, yeah, I agree with you. And we have another caller on the line. Hello there, Daryl from Indiana. Do you have a question for Lloyd Arbach?
3: I do. First of all, thank you, um, Annette. And thank you, Lloyd, for just having this forum for us to be able to ask questions. I appreciate it. No, sure. I, I have a question about whether or not it's possible for someone who claims that they're a psychic. I took, Um, There's a a pet psychic here, famed pet psychic, Dan Delgado, and I took my dog to him and and he kind of told me that we had a falling out and he kind of told me that he was going to possess my dog or make sure that my dog did things and he would be able to manipulate my dog with his mind. I shrugged it off. I didn't think that there was anything to it. Within a week or so, my dog really began to act strange, uh, very odd behavior. And whenever I, I used to play his tape, and sometimes when I would put it on, or if my dog either saw a picture of him or heard his voice, he would go away he would go nuts. And I had never heard of anything like this, where he'd never had any alone time with my dog. He would just focus in on my dog and close his eyes and think. And I I laughed at it at the very beginning. I didn't think there's anything could be done with this, but now that I'm looking at my dog's reaction, I'm not so sure. And I'm wondering whether or not a person can tap into the mind of a dog and control it. Is this possible?
1: Well, from a parapsychological perspective, I'd say no. But from a psychological perspective, here's the problem. Some animals, you know, you had a falling out with a guy. It's possible your dog sensed that there was a problem with this guy, and anytime you show a picture or mention his, you know, or just give him anything that reminds the dog of this guy, the dog reacts negatively because mm-hmm. the dog would probably go for the guy's throat <laughs> next time you saw him. Um, that's a, that's a, a real possibility, and the other but
3: we didn't side, argue in front of them. animals. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter. I'm sorry, you know, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just say,
1: animals pick up feelings. Animals are really good at picking up emotions. So, um, okay, they can. Your dog may be picking up on you being re- negatively reactive to him, and also may also pick up, maybe behaving a little oddly around you, just thinking about this guy controlling him, because there's an emotional mm-hmm. output at that point.
0: Right. And and what, Daryl, has been my experience with the animals, because I do talk to the animals as well, and the animals read us through the pictures that we send out in our own mind. So if you were upset with this man and you were thinking about that um, and you were sending out those pictures to your dog and the dog was picking them up, and so the dog would act a little erratically, and I can see where that would happen very easily.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Running around,
3: barking upwards, and jumping around, things like that, that's not abnormal?
0: Yeah. Um, well, there are dogs not that, that your do, dog do do that. that. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If the, dog but,
1: never, the dog has never done that before, and the dog is, just, is reacting very negatively. I, I exactly. I'm drawing on it.
0: Right. That's exactly what I was just going to say, too, Lloyd, was, Daryl, what you need to do is just dismiss that reading that you had with that fellow and uh, don't think about it anymore because you are sending out those pictures to the animal. Okay? And see how your dog responds. All right? Just kind of forget
3: about that, man and just not even focus in on him at all, and and, and hopefully my dog can then get back into normal.
2: Exactly. Exactly.
3: Yeah. Exactly. Completely so let that... Him, if my dog ever sees this guy, do you think that he might lunge at him?
1: Very, it's possible. He might. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's okay.
3: could... It
1: might depend on how you react to him at that point in time, if you're with a dog.
3: Yeah, we might both lunge at him, so maybe that's not a good idea. Right. Yeah, does not coming anywhere near him. <laughs> right.
0: All right, Daryl.
3: I mean, you got a whole, you'd have a whole scene going on there, probably, where... Police and everything else so yeah i what i'm going to do is i want to try not to focus in on dan i'm going to try to make my sure that my dog doesn't focus in on it i'll show my dog other pictures you know that kind of thing and maybe we can maybe we can work past this
0: yeah there you go there you go all right thank you so much for calling in for annette martin's paranormal world goodbye all right. Well, Lloyd, we are coming near the top of the hour here, and we do want to tell our listeners about our new series of guidebooks to ghosts, Have oh, Ghosts yeah. Will Travel San Francisco. So why don't you tell them a little bit about that?
1: Well, um, Annette and I are writing, um, going to be writing a series of books for, um, for a publisher here in, in California. Focusing in on different areas, we're starting out with the, San, the greater San Francisco Bay Area, and eventually we'll be moving out from there. But unlike most of the books that you find about haunted places, we're dealing with places we've actually been to or are going to for the purpose of the book um, to do to find out a little bit about those places, to really check out the stories to see if they're true, and more importantly to see what Annette picks up on. And so we're giving it the perspective of the parapsychologist and the psychic. For this, uh, including in some instances transcripts with Annette's communication with the ghosts that are present, if there are ghosts present, as opposed to residual hauntings or something not ghostly.
0: Right. And uh, Lloyd, why don't you give everyone your website addresses?
1: Sure. Let me mention the the first book that Annette mentioned is uh, San Francisco, and then we're going to be doing the wine country, Napa Sonoma Wine Country will be the next one, and we're hoping to kind of expand. We're trying to up with some really interesting places for us to visit and for um, for the, the books to cover. But they're going to be, um, people will be surprised, I think, Annette, because there's only like six, six or seven locations in each of the books.
0: Yes, um, I think they will be. Yeah, so
1: it, it's, it's really going to be in depth.
0: Most definitely. And yes. when if people want to get in touch with you, Lloyd, uh, yeah, can you web- give them w- your.
1: Sure. My website is mindreader.com, www.mindreader.com. Um, my email is ESPER, that's E-S-P-E-R, at S-F-O dot com. You can get there from the website as well. Um, and folks can call the Office of Paranormal Investigations at 415-249-9275. And if they want, they can also get to me through my other website, which is hauntedbychocolate.com.
0: Oh, chocolate. Oh, Oh, thank you, Lloyd, so much for being our guest today. It's been enlightening to learn more about parapsychology and ghost hunting. And I hope that you'll come back so we can talk about your new chocolate book, Yum Yum. And you know, folks, he makes the best chocolate in the world. Thank you, Lloyd. Thanks for having me. Very good. And next week, my guest is going to be Dr. Margaret Cochran, a psychotherapist. So be sure and tune into Annette Martin's Paranormal World. Goodbye for now.